ask that you turn this morning in your Bibles to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation. We'll be finishing up chapter 3 by looking at chapter 3 in verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, please and sisters, if you would, hear with me the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to eat with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far is the reading of God's word. Now it was to these seven churches that we see Christ has John write to. But this number seven, as we have already said on multiple occasions, is not an arbitrary number. But rather, this number seven was selected because it is laden with rich meaning. And we have seen that the number seven used throughout Scripture, it signifies to us uh, completion, or, or fullness, or totality. So that the seven churches that are that are chosen here, out of the, the many in Asia Minor who are dealing with the same thing, were picked with the purpose of addressing issues that all of the Christian churches were struggling and dealing with. And they were chosen, this number seven likewise, to demonstrate to us as well that these were written not only for them, but to us as well today as these are the same issues and, and troubles that we ourselves deal with as well. But the, the time period has changed from when the letters were written, but the issues that are being addressed here do not change. Which is why it is so important for us to not just regard these letters as history, to not just read them and believe that they had meaning and force at the end of the first century, but rather to read these words and to heed their instruction, to, to heed the warnings, to, to be consoled by the words, 
to be encouraged by the promises, to be spiritually awakened by the threats, to be strengthened by those descriptions that Christ gives to us of himself, describing who he is and what he has done for his church, which are to cause us to be a people who walk and who live by faith and who hold fast to that faith until the end when Christ will call us home. I mean, how many of us here, like those in Ephesus, have been guilty of just going through the motion? They're doing the right things outwardly, but our heart is not in it. How many times in your Christian life have you had to repent of forsaking that love that you had at first, allowing it to, to wax and wane and grow cold? Or how many of us, like the church in Smyrna, have had to be reminded that we are not to fear what anyone can do to us, that we are not to fear any persecution or suffering that we might endure, for there is a crown laid up for us at the end. Or, how many times have we been like the church in Pergamum, where we have tried to maintain a friendship with the world in order that we would not be persecuted or ostracized by them? Or how many of us, like Pergamum, or like the Nicolaitans who were in Pergamum, have, have held to some form of antinomianism, have believed that God's law is not for us, that, the, that our manner of living doesn't matter? How many of us have had to repent of that? And repent for being stumbling blocks to others in, in promoting that type of teaching to them? Or how many of us, like Thyatira, have been guilty of tolerating sin, Right, tolerating sin in our own lives, in our church, in our homes. Or like in the church of Sardis, how many of us have been guilty of being in a spiritual slumber? Of being unfaithful to our Lord in our scripture reading, in our prayer? Right, in, our, in, in exercising ourselves in, in all those gospel duties that He has given to us? How many here can say that we have not soiled our garments like those in Sardis? Like the church in Philadelphia. How many of us oftentimes can feel weak and useless to Christ? How many of us maybe are discouraged or ashamed that we go to a, a small church that to the world's eyes doesn't seem to, to be very powerful? Or like with the church in Laodicea in our text today, how many of you here have believed that because you've been given something, materially, that that equated to your spiritual condition. That if you are given much, it must mean that, that God has much favor on you because you are someone with strong faith. Not realizing that in fact you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked when you try to live independently from God. When you take pride in your own self-sufficiency. When you have been deceived, believing your spiritual condition was this, when in fact it was that. And so, brothers and sisters, we see that everything that these seven churches dealt with, we ourselves deal with today. But perhaps what's going on in our text today, and what is being said of the church in Laodicea, perhaps this is most comparable to what's going on in American Christianity in the 21st century. As in American Christianity, what do we see? Right? We oftentimes equate financial prosperity with, with great godliness and faith. This is what the church here was doing as well. Right? We, we oftentimes find that the people who go to churches 
Large churches for many reasons, don't they? But one of the reasons is that belief. Right? You see this big church, this huge building, all these people, all these resources, and they say, that church has something. Right? They have faith. Look at all that God has blessed them with. Why go to this small church that must be doing something wrong when this big church must be doing something right? I'm going to go there. That is where the Lord is prospering His people. And yet, brothers and sisters, today in our text we will see that, that this is not the case, that we are not to equate earthly prosperity with spiritual condition, as Laodicea has been guilty of doing, and for which they are harshly rebuked by the Lord over. And this leads us then to our, our first point this morning that we want to consider, which is Laodicea's spiritual condition. Laodicea's spiritual condition. Now, Laodicea is situated some 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And Laodicea is one of three churches in what was called the Lycus Valley. The other two churches were Heropolis and Colossae. And Laodicea was located upon a major trade route. So Laodicea was an extremely rich and wealthy city. They were so rich and so wealthy that when the great earthquake in 61 AD destroyed the city and Rome offered them funds to rebuild the city, Laodicea rejected their funds. I mean, imagine that today. Think about that today when natural disasters occur, when an earthquake, tornado, a hurricane happens, and it wipes out a city. What oftentimes do they do? They look to the government to provide assistance because the damage is so significant and so great. They could never rebuild the city on their own. They need help. Such is not the case with Laodicea. And they, they rejected the offer of financial assistance and, and rebuilt the city on their own. And in fact, when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt the city with a stadium and a massive theater and a gymnasium. All things that they prided themselves on being able to do, that they were rich and wealthy and needed nobody else's assistance. But it was this spirit, brothers and sisters, this spirit of independence, of self-sufficiency, of not needing anyone else, of relying on their own wealth. They got the church in Laodicea in much trouble. Now in verse 15, we see this, that Jesus begins by saying, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Now, if we just read that, isn't that a great indictment upon the church? Right there. I know your works. And then there are no praiseworthy works that he says afterwards. I know your works, but nothing good could be said of them after that statement. But instead, he says, you are neither hot nor cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that word there, spit, can also be translated vomit. Right, so what Christ is communicating to the church is, you so disgust me by your lukewarmness, I could vomit you out of my mouth. But we have to ask, what in the world could a church be doing that was so wrong that would cause the Lord to say something like this? And what does this statement even mean? Well, brothers and sisters, it's it's not oftentimes what you think it means, or maybe what you have heard it means. And this is what I mean by it. Oftentimes we hear that what the Lord is saying here is that He either 
wanted Laodicea to be really hot, which is like spiritually on fire for the Lord, or he wanted them to be cold, which is kind of anti-Christian. But because they're they're in between here, they haven't chosen a side, because they're lukewarm, he is disgusted with them, and so he will spew them out of his mouth. We're not to see that this is at all what he is saying. Uh, he's not saying, I'd rather you be a complete apostate or unbeliever than be a lukewarm Christian. Right? That's not what he's saying, but here is where we have to understand the circumstances and the surroundings of the city so that we might better interpret this text to understand what he's trying to communicate to the church. Now remember, as I've just said, Laodicea was one of three churches in the Lycus Valley. You had uh, six miles north Heropolis, and you had ten miles to the east Colossae. Now Heropolis was known for what? It was known for its hot water. Right? It was known for its hot water which, which also had uh, medicinal purposes and effects for the city. It was very useful in the city. Uh, Colossae was known for what? For its cold, pure drinking water. And so we need to see both of these things that he's talking about, hot and cold, are both good things. It's not one's good and one's bad. They're both good things. They're both useful things. They're both pleasant things. This is an analogy, though, that, that these people would have understood, having these cities so close to them. And even though Laodicea is this rich and wealthy city, they had aqueducts that they paid for to bring in water to the city. But that water, when it came to the city and they went to drink it, do you know what it tasted like? It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm water. And so, see, Christ is using an analogy that they would understand. And it's an analogy that every one of us here today understands as well, doesn't it? I, like many of you, love a nice hot cup of coffee. Maybe like many of you, I too love iced coffee. Love a nice cold cup of coffee. But what I cannot stand, and what I always drink after Sunday school when I'm done, is lukewarm coffee. It disgusts me. I want to spit it out. It is terrible. And so this is what the Lord is saying to them. Right? These churches are hot and cold. They're, they're good. They're useful. They're pleasant. But you, Laodicea, are none of these. Right? You are none of these. You are lukewarm. And just like the lukewarm water that they had in the city, Laodicea was tepid, spiritually. Laodicea was warmish in their uh, religion. They were, they were room temperature. They were indifferent and half-hearted Christians, with, which disgusted our Lord. Right? It disgusted Him. And it disgusted Him even more because they did not realize this about themselves. And we see that in verse 17. For Christ says, For you say, I am rich. You see that? For you say, I am rich. The Laodiceans say that of themselves. That I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, they were rich material. And they knew it. They weren't bashful about it. But they also believed that their material wealth signified to them also their spiritual condition. And so Christ has drawn right the letter to the church to remove this false ideology, this false way of thinking from the church. 
Which is why then he uses that self-designation. The Amen. The faithful is your witness. Remember how these self-designations tie in to what he's saying to them, what he's trying to communicate to them in the letter. Now, oftentimes, where do we see amen? It comes at the end of things, right? It comes at the end of, of, our, of our hymns that we sing. It comes at the end in the scripture of a trustworthy and true statement. Where we, we say amen to that. Where we, we believe it. We will heartily agree with it. Yes, that is true. So here we need to see this as really a, a, a threefold title because the Amen is used as a name here. And so he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This is a, a threefold name that is best understood as Christ contrasting his faithful and true witness to the Laodiceans' unfaithful and absent witness. Right? He, he's contrasting and comparing his effective ministry and their ineffective ministry. And so it's really a rebuke to the church and it was ineffective. Why? Because they, they compromised their, their faith and they measured their spiritual condition against what? Against the standards of the world. They measured it against how much wealth they had. Not according to the Word of God. Not according to Christ. Who is ultimately the standard for the church. Right? As a church, we are to identify ourselves with Christ. Right? Our identity is to be found in Him. It's not to be found in possessions. It's not to be found in riches or wealth or material goods. And so Christ is saying, unless they changed that mindset, unless they changed that thinking, unless they repented, He was going to spew them, vomit them out of His mouth. So brothers and sisters, I ask, do we see how disgusted God is with half-hearted Christianity? Do we see how much he, he hates complacent and, and compromising Christianity? Christ, though, was faithful in the flesh. Christ never failed to confess His Father's name. He never failed in His obedience to the will of God. He, he was faithful in suffering unto death for the sake of the elect. He was faithful in his intimate fellowship with the Lord through his devotion to prayer. Right? He was a, a faithful and true witness in every aspect of his life and his earthly ministry. And the church in Laodicea was not. So they needed to remember this. They needed to remember who they are, what they were living for. They needed to remember what it was they were called to pursue every single day of their lives. They needed to remember that as believers we're not to be storing up earthly riches and earthly treasures, but rather we are to be pursuing spiritual riches and spiritual goods that we are to lay up for ourselves in heaven. Now, I want us to also understand though, that the problem with the church of Laodicea was not their wealth. Right? Wealth in and of itself isn't something evil. So the problem wasn't their wealth. The problem wasn't their rich. The problem is what they allowed their wealth to do to them, which is to take their eyes off of their Savior. To take their eyes off of Christ. I mean, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of things that we too enjoy in our own lives, aren't there? There are a lot of recreations we enjoy. There are a lot of hobbies we enjoy. Maybe some of us enjoy watching a movie as a family or, or reading a book or riding a bike. Right? All of these things aren't evil in and of themselves, but they do become evil 
when they cause us to become no different than the world, when they cause us to, to take our eyes off of Christ, when we spend all of our time in front of the TV or in front of the computer screen, when our happiness and our zeal and our joy come from being involved in these things and no longer come from Christ, or these things become evil, when we are and our lives are revolve around them, when they are the center of everything that we do, Right? They are evil when, when that is what we wake up to do, that we are itching to do, that we want to waste day after day after day doing. All these things can make you forget about Christ. Why? For what purpose you've been purchased by His blood? And why you've been transferred into His kingdom? And so we have to ask ourselves here this day as we read about the church in Laodicea, has this been true of any of you here today? Right? Have, have any of you taken on the attitude of this world? Do you only find enjoyment and, and pleasure and happiness and enthralling yourself in the things of the world for six days of the week and then only coming and being a Christian on the Lord's Day? Brothers and sisters, I implore you, stop having your needs met by the world. Stop allowing the things of the world to impair your Christian witness in your life. Oftentimes, in corporate prayer, what happens? People pray for opportunity to witness to family members and to friends and to co-workers, all these things. Not realizing how many of those opportunities we are constantly allowing to pass by because we have been no different from the world. Right? We become just like those who we are with. And so we talk like them and act like them and, and discuss the things that they discuss and do the things that they do. Only to, if we realize that if we continue daily to, to talk like a Christian, act like a Christian, live like a Christian, and be constrained by Christian thoughts, that you would have more opportunities that arise to witness to the, your neighbors and to witness to those who are in your home and in your place of employment. Why? Because they're going to see you. They're going to see something different about you. They're going to say to you, come out, neighbor, and come do something with us on Sunday. You're going to say to them, no, I can't. This is the Lord's day. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has set this day apart for His worship. I'm going to worship my Lord this day. You see, but instead, what are we concerned with? We're concerned with not hurting people's feelings, not disappointing people. When in fact, the one who we ought to be concerned with is not disappointing or offending our Almighty God. The church in Laodicea was deceived as many Christians today are deceived. This is why we need the Amen. This is why we need the, the faithful and true witness to shake us from our slumber by telling us the truth. Right? He tells us in this text today what it is we need to hear as a church. The world tells us independence is the chief good. Self-sufficiency is the chief good. Financial wealth and prosperity is the chief good. Not God or His truth or His word. Those things you can live without. But I want you to see how damaging that attitude, that, that way of thinking is how, how destructive that is. That attitude pushes God away. 
You become fools when you think that you can be strong and when you don't understand how truly weak and poor you are. The church in Laodicea needs to understand what it means to be destitute of the Lord. And we too need to be reminded of that today as well. We need, we need to be reminded of, of what it is to be apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God and the strength of God. What, what do you become apart from, from Christ? It is this, it is wretched, it is pitiable, poor, blind and naked. That is who you are outside of Christ. That is who you are in your own independence and self-sufficiency. Right? You, are, you are wretched, you are a miserable sinner who cannot overcome your own sin. You are poor, that you lack spiritual riches that only Christ provides. You are blind, unable to discern spiritual things. You are naked. You stand without any shame or, co- or covering for your shame of your sin. You are most miserable without the grace of God. Grace that money cannot buy. You see, the church in Laodicea was satisfied with herself. The church in Laodicea was content where they were at. They were happy to be living in Laodicea in peace with everyone, having no trouble whatsoever, not understanding that it only happened because they became like everybody else in Laodicea. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not flatter ourselves. Let us not flatter ourselves about who we are apart from Christ. But that also means that never forgetting daily who is the beginning of God's creation. And that leads us to our second point, which is Christ the Counselor. Christ the Counselor. Although the church is in this wretched state, we see that that Christ rebukes her out of love as Savior and Redeemer and Good Shepherd. He advises and he, He counsels the sheep how to be spiritually rich in a world that is spiritually poor. And how does He do that? By pointing us to Himself. This is what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now we need to understand that this is a reference that goes back to Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. This is where we read. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is Christ saying here? He's telling you, stop shopping at the marketplaces of the world. And come and buy from me. What he's not saying, though, is that you can purchase spiritual riches or glory. But rather, we need to understand that he employs the figure of a merchant to teach us a truth. Because he says in Isaiah what? Come who has no money and come and buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine without any money. So he's not saying that you can buy spiritual uh, graces that you can buy glory, but rather what he's encouraging them to do is to stop looking to themselves. 
Right? To stop pride themselves in the things that this world prides themselves on. Stop looking to their own wealth and riches as a means to be able to, to do whatever you want. Right? And think that you can be spiritually, spiritually rich apart from Christ. But rather, and instead, to throw yourself before the feet of Christ, before the one and only one who possesses all that the Christian needs. Right? Christ is the one who possesses all that you and I need. Right? He possesses that gold that is refined by fire. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ possesses all of the spiritual wealth and riches that there are. All that we need is to be found in Christ. For it is passed through the refiner's fire. Those riches he has is passed through the refiner's fire. And it is trustworthy. And it is purified to his church. And yet no money can buy this. No store can provide you these things. Only Christ has these riches and he offers them to you as a free gift. But we must come with empty hands as beggars to our Lord, realizing that not we, but He is the all-sufficient one. That Christ is the well of life. And so He invites us to let down our bucket, let down our barrels into His well, and He will fill them up with full with His living water, as Christ is life itself. Here also then is where this second self-designation comes into play. This beginning of God's creation. We are not to understand by this that he is the first created being. Right? Obviously, that would go against all that scripture says about who Christ is. And instead, how we are to understand this title is that what Christ is saying is that he is the one through whom all things come to be. It's the same thing Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he is calling upon the church to look to the one who is the beginning of all God's creation, the one who has the power, who has brought all things to be. Turn to him, you wretched, miserable, poor, pitiable, naked sinner, for he is the one with the power. As he brought creation into existence. But not only that, what else does he do? He brings about the new creation. Right? He is the beginning of God's new creation, as he is the firstborn from the dead. And so we are look we are to look to him for his strength and his might. He is the one who is all sufficient. But not only does he promise us those riches of his grace as we look to him, but what else does he promise us say? White garments. Right? Come buy from my store. And also, white garments. Which is what? Holiness. Right? His purity, his righteousness, which he gives to us. So that our nakedness might be clothed. Or we could say it another way, so that our sin might be covered by those pure white garments. Right? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sinned, and the shame of their sin came over them, and they needed to be clothed by. Right? Christ provided garments for them. We too need to go to Christ to have his pure white garments 
clothe our sin, wash our sin, blot our sin away. It's humiliating, isn't it, to be stripped naked before a crowd. But it's also very honorable to wear fine clothing amongst others as well, isn't it? And Laodicea was the, the color of black, which was the symbol of wealth, as they were known for producing fine black wool. And so it was the, the rich people, the wealthy people, who would, who would walk around arrayed in, in fine black wool clothing. But what do we see here in our text? Does Christ promise us the riches of the world? He promises us the opposite of what the world does. They offer us black arraignment. He offers us white garments to be clothed in. Right? He, he calls upon us to not look like the world, but to look other than the world, to be set apart from the world, to be consecrated from the world. Right? To wear right, white garments doesn't mean that he actually you know, hands you in a hanger uh, white flax and a, and a shirt. But rather, what it means to be right, clothed in Christ, to, to walk around as a Christian, right, bearing the name of Christ, not being ashamed to be uh, numbered amongst Christ, and to live as a Christian in the world, Right, and to live separate from the world and the sin of the world, and to be identified with Christ before the world, allowing the world to know, yes, I've been consecrated to Christ and not to the world. What Christ also says is He will freely give salve. He will freely give salve to these saints so that their eyes may see. Now, salve is a is a balm or it's an ointment. Now, in Laodicea. They, were, they had a, a medical school there that produced all sorts of staff. And yet, brothers and sisters, they could not produce a salve that would wash away sin. They, they could not produce a salve that would allow someone to escape eternal judgment. They, they could not produce a salve that would help wipe away the blindness of the sinner. But only Christ can. And that is what he offers to the saints. He offers to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. He is the one who allows us to be able to see truth and understand His Word and walk in paths of righteousness. And He reminds them in verse 19, it is to those He loves that He reproves. Christ here is chastising His church. He is rebuking His church. But it's not because He hates His church. He does it out of love. And he wants them to turn away from their wickedness and idolatry and immorality and turn back to him in repentance, which means a, a changing of the mind. Or to think differently about things and a changing of the heart to turn their heart away from loving those things to loving Christ and to cling to him with all zeal. That is what he's calling upon the saints to do. I ask you, does this at all move your heart to repent in the least bit? Have you for too long looked to acquire the riches of this world at the expense of buying from Christ? If so, turn back from your backsliding ways. Repent of your sin. And turn back to the one who covers your nakedness. The one who will cover your shame. The one who protects you and guides you and teaches you and nourishes you and loves you. As he said, Behold, a 
stand at the door and knock. I implore you, do not let another day go by that you do not answer the knocking door of your Savior. Do not let another day go by that you do not answer the door to your Savior as He comes knocking. This leads us then to our third and our final point, which is Christ's pledge to the saints. Christ pledged to the saints. Now this verse 20 that I just here talked about, Behold, I, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This text is oftentimes used as an evangelistic text. Right? We, we proclaim this to the world, to all sinners everywhere. We, we, we go on the streets and we, we say this, excuse me, to people. Right? As if Christ is, is outside the heart of every unbeliever, knocking, 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 just begging, please, O oh sinner, let me in your heart. This is not at all what the text is teaching us. Not at all what this text means. One of the reasons we know this is because who is it addressed to? It's not addressed to the world, it's addressed to the saints in Laodicea, who have neglected doing the will of God who have fallen spiritually lethargic. But he's not calling the world to answer his knocking. He's calling his church to answer the knock of the door. But he, he is here speaking to those he loves. Those he loves, he reproves. He's speaking to those whom he knows intimately. And he knocks today at the door of this church as well. And how does he do that knocking? Through his word to you. He knocks at the door of your heart every day. As you read His Word and hear His Word, He's knocking today in His church. As you hear the Word of God proclaimed. Right? Will we answer that door and walk in obedience to the Lord? Demonstrating the, the veracity of our faith because for those who do, He promises to you that He will come in and dine with you and you will dine with Him. Now in the ancient world, to, to dine with someone oftentimes signifies a close, intimate, affectionate fellowship. This is what Christ is promising to the saints. Right? He is promising to the saints that He will sup with them forever in the Messianic Kingdom. That's what He's saying. He's promising eternal felicity in the age to come with Him in which we'll have deep, intimate fellowship forever with the Lord. And we derive this understanding from two texts, Matthew 26, verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink of it anew with you. Where? In the kingdom of God. Revelation 19:9. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what we see here is Christ pledged to His church that those who hear the voice of the Savior and answer to you is promised close, intimate fellowship in the kingdom to come when Christ returns. That is what He is promising to His people. But this is not the only pledge that He makes to His church. 
In verse 21 he says this, And to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What is this promise? What is this promise? The promise to those who overcome. The promise to those who overcome and who are faithful witnesses to Christ here on earth. That you will rule and reign with Christ in the age to come. Jesus says this very thing to the apostles in Luke chapter 22 and verses 28 to 30. He says this, You are those who have stayed with me in my trial, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What a promise! Right, that, that just as Christ overcame the world by the cross and now reigns, He has set forth a pattern to you, His church here today. Right, he's saying to the saints in Laodicea, you must suffer as, as I suffered. You must experience trial and tribulation. You must be persecuted and attacked. And for you might likewise lose all of your financial prosperity. But don't forget what the cross has done for you. What a victorious blow it was to sin and this world and death and the devil. And as Christ now reigns in glory, we will reign with him and judge the nations who have persecuted his church. This is the destiny of the church. This is what God has decreed from all of eternity. And by grace and through faith, he will bring his church to its destiny. Understanding this, doesn't it cause you today to just want to forsake everything in the world? Forsake those earthly enjoyments that you tie yourself down to instead of looking to Christ and His Word and being faithful and true witnesses in this life. Brothers and sisters, I call upon us this day right, to divide from the store of Christ. Right, to stop buying from the, the marketplaces of this world. To buy from the store of Christ because what Christ has laid up for you is far greater than any of the riches that this world has to offer. Christ calls upon his church today to, to hear his voice and answer. To open the door, to repent, to heed his instruction, to be led by his grace and his strength. And so may God grant us that grace to respond to his voice this day as we look forward to that day when every believer here in the age to come will sit and suffer with our Lord in His kingdom forever. Please bow your hands with me in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We confess, Father, that too often we look to our own independence and self-sufficiency. We confess our sin, Lord, and we ask that You would forgive us of that sin. We ask, Lord, that You would cause us to distrust ourselves more. That You would cause us to, to lose the great love we have for so many earthly enjoyments, and that rather you would strengthen and grow our, and increase our love in spiritual things, so that we might be a people who, more often than not, are seeking and setting our minds upon the things of God, that we are a people who are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven 
as you have called us to. Father, we come before you and we ask all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.